Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, we tackle the idea of monolithic voting blocks. Do they really exist, or are they political fiction? Political campaigns often target specific voter groups like women, Latinos, or Catholics. In the last couple of weeks, the Trump campaign has held rallies in Arizona branded as Native Americans for Trump and Latter-day Saints for Trump. Meanwhile, the Biden campaign has launched Spanish-language ads and met with all the same groups. But how truly uniform are the beliefs of voters within an assumed demographic? We asked University of Arizona political science professor Samara Klar if those monolithic voting groups really exist. You know, I would think the only monoliths that we could try to think about would be Democrats and Republicans. Democrats almost exclusively vote for Democratic candidates. Republicans almost exclusively vote for Republican candidates. But any demographic group you're talking about, be it women or Latino voters, uh, you know, these are very bipartisan groups. Of course, some groups will trend toward one party or another. So we know that Latinos, for example, tend to vote for Democrats, but are by no means a monolithic group. Uh, and we could say the same for women. Women are, you know, really split down the middle. We hear a lot about the gender gap. Uh, the gender gap suggests that women are more likely to vote for Democratic candidates than are men. But women themselves are really divided along partisan lines, especially white women. We'll hear more from Samara Klor on the voting habits of women later in the show. But first, Latinos are expected to make up 13 percent of the national electorate this year. That means both parties are wooing those voters here in Arizona and across the nation. But as Elisa Resnick reports, Latinos are not a monolith, and they're not the only group that gets treated like one. Hey, you all, luchadores. I'm about to take That's Tomas Robles. He's on an Instagram story explaining things like how to get an early ballot if you haven't yet and where to drop it off if you have. Let's see, make sure you can vote. And I'm going to teach you how... Robles is the co-executive director of Living United for Change in Arizona, or Lucha. The political action group is focused on immigration and workers' rights. In September, it launched a sweeping get-out-the-vote campaign to reach more than a million Black, Indigenous, and Latino voters across the state. Alejandra Gomez, Lucha's other co-executive director, says that's a pool of potential voters who've been historically pushed to the wayside. Our communities have been completely divested from from uh, the political parties, not only in outreach, but in dollars spent. This year, Arizona is a battleground state where both presidential campaigns are focused on those groups. President Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden have visited in recent weeks. Biden has Spanish-language ads in states with large Latino communities like Arizona and Florida. El agua, la luz, el celular, nuestra casa. And so does Trump. There are some nuances. Biden's ads feature different Spanish accents for different states, for example. The Trump campaign has had several Latinos for Trump rallies in different Arizona cities. But Gomez says there's still a lot the campaigns are missing. Not only do we get treated as a monolith, but then we also get treated as a community that doesn't care about elections when that's just not true. We have these conversations at the kitchen table 
And the follow-up question is like, well, where do I go vote? Gomez says Lucha teams in Tucson and Phoenix spent months going door-to-door in these communities. And they found many times households had never been visited by a political group before at all. We have been the organizations that have pulled our communities into the political arena in ways that neither of the parties had done. Lucha was founded a decade ago in response to SB 1070 and other immigration crackdowns enacted under former Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arpaio. This year, the group is campaigning for Biden. They endorsed Bernie Sanders in the primary and have always supported progressive politicians in Arizona and nationwide. But that's not the case with other Latino campaigners. As a Latino conservative, I felt like there needed to be a voice within the Republican Party to provide a voice for my people, to, for conservative Latinos. That's Yasser Sanchez, a Mexican-American immigration attorney and longtime Republican in Mesa. He campaigned for Mitt Romney in 2007 and John McCain's last run in 2018. He says he believes in conservative ideals like small government, lower taxation, and a robust free trade market. But he's also pro-immigrant. Since taking office, Trump has tried to cancel policies like the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, which protects some undocumented immigrants brought to the U.S. as children. Trump also enacted family separation policies and sweeping changes to asylum. Sanchez felt like he couldn't recognize the Republican Party anymore. As I saw the ideas of Russell Pierce, of Jorah Pio become national through Donald Trump, before you knew it, there was no space for any dissenting voice. Now, for the first time in his political career, he's campaigning for a Democrat, Biden. Sanchez says although the Trump administration has hosted several Latino-focused campaign rallies here, he doesn't believe he'll win Arizona. The man that pardoned Arpaio, the man that started his election by saying that Latinos were murderers, rapists, and criminals, and that Mexico was not seeing their best ones, is coming here to Arizona, and he's asking for Latinos' votes? I took it as a slap in the face. Latinos here are largely of Mexican origin, a demographic some polls have shown increasingly support Biden. But a recent Pew study found Cuban Americans remain mostly Republican. That's all to say that one uniform Latino vote doesn't really exist. Both campaigns are also targeting Black and Indigenous voters. Here in Arizona, Donald Trump Jr. held a Native Americans for Trump rally in Williams. Earlier this month, Biden and Senator Kamala Harris met with tribal leaders in Phoenix. The state is home to 22 recognized tribes. This year, registered Indigenous voters make up 6% of Arizona's electorate and also appear on the ballot. I'm from the communities of Pisanmo'o and Hook, located on the Thon Otham Nation, right here in beautiful Pima County. Hana Otham tribal member Gabriela Casadas-Kelly is running for Pima County recorder. If elected, she'll join a growing number of Indigenous elected officials in Arizona and around the country. However, some Indigenous voters say they're still getting left behind. What do they get wrong? Well, so much. I mean, it's just not seeing us, you know? You know, we still, we're still, like, mythical to them, that they still can't believe there's a Native American around them. Sarah Mae Williams is a member of the Thahana Otham Nation and an education advocate who served on the Tribal Nation's school board. She says she's always been active in politics and was a longtime Democrat. But a few years ago, she started to feel like a lot of the issues she was trying to address for rural indigenous communities, like road service, access to education and environmental stewardship, weren't really being taken into consideration. You know, there's a lot of Democrats that will tell you, yes, we're here to help you. But in turn, that doesn't always happen. 
And it's the same for both parties. And I started to feel like there's no way that we can win with both of these parties, unfortunately. So Williams became a registered member of the Green Party, drawn by the party's stated values like grassroots democracy, respect for diversity, and gender equality. Arizona has more than 300,000 eligible indigenous voters, a number experts say could help swing the state this year. For Williams, that's an untapped powerhouse. If we decided to, let's say, back a Green Party candidate, we could do it financially. But lately, she says she feels like even her new party has not lived up to its ideals. I believe that, like most parties, they have a person of color problem. And like I said, they want you at the table. But when it comes time to actually make change happen and to back up some of the things that you need to happen in your community, that doesn't happen. William says she's voting for Biden this year and hopes things will change for the better. Still, in the future, she wants all political parties to get serious about making sure voters like her have a seat and a voice at the table. And that feeling of not fitting into a specific political party or camp, that's one many can relate to, regardless of their expected voting block. For The Buzz, I'm Elisa Resnick. As we just heard, a group increasingly targeted by political campaigns are indigenous voters. As Election Day nears, tribal leaders and candidates for local elections have recently been talking about indigenous voters, from barriers they face to questions about their right to vote. Emma Gibson tells us more. Native Americans in Arizona gained the right to vote in 1948, but not everybody knows that. During a recent Arizona State Museum webinar, Thana Otham Nation chairman Ned Norris Jr. was asked questions from the viewers. They want to know if they have the right to vote. And also somebody else says, what, what is the population of your community and what percent are registered to vote? Well, um, we do have the right to vote. That right was afforded to us, when was it? In the 60s? Like many non-white voters, the ability to easily exercise the right to vote didn't come till the 60s, with the signing of the Voting Rights Act. And it wasn't until 1970 that literacy tests were banned. Even though on paper it says 1948, you know, we gave Native Americans the right to vote here in Arizona, that wasn't really the reality until about 1970. That's Rosemary Avila. She's with All Voting is Local, an advocacy group that tries to break down discriminatory voting barriers. She referenced a 1928 Arizona Supreme Court case in which two men from the Gila River Indian community were denied the right to vote. The court said despite being state residents, indigenous people were, quote, incapable of managing their own affairs. It deemed Native Americans ineligible to vote as they were under guardianship of the federal government. When we look at that type of language that was used to close off the franchise Native Americans, we see how that played a big part in this continuing legacy of barriers that Native Americans are facing today. Those barriers were recently discussed by candidates for Pima County Recorder in an Arizona Daily Star candidate forum. Benny White, the Republican candidate, opined about the voting barriers tribal members living in tribal lands face. I suspect that uh, education is a problem. I suspect that uh, Poverty is a problem. I suspect that health care is a problem. Abela, with All Voting is Local, says these social issues aren't the most obvious barriers for Indigenous voters. 
She says a real barrier to voting in Arizona tribal lands is the lack of post offices, with only 48 covering almost 20 million acres. Since rural reservations don't usually have street addresses, many rely on post offices for mail-in ballots. But this can still require traveling hours to vote. All of these things, I think the cumulative effect, it has impacted Native Americans' turnout and their ability to participate in our democratic process. Avila says additional barriers include acceptable forms of voter ID and a lack of Internet access in rural communities. For The Buzz, I'm Emma Gibson. We continue our look at the perception of voting monoliths with another set of groups that are often lumped together, people of faith. Since the nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, we've heard a lot about the Catholic vote. For years, there's been talk about the evangelical vote, and in Arizona, there's discussion of the LDS or Mormon vote. But grouping voters based solely on their faith isn't that simple. I am a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I have also been a Democrat pretty much since I was eligible to vote. Rachel Clawson lives in the Metro Phoenix area and is part of a growing number of members of the LDS Church who admit they're breaking from what most people assume is a solid Republican block of voters. It's becoming more normal for um, Latter-day Saints to, to either be, you know, registered independent or registered Democrats. You know, um, this last, I think especially since Donald Trump was elected, um, I found more and more groups of individuals who uh, don't see themselves reflected um, you know, or their faith reflected in him as a president. And so I've, I've been able to, you know, expand my networks and find that actually there are quite a few Latter-day Saints who think similarly. Clawson is involved with several Mormon groups, including two that are campaigning for Biden and Harris. In Arizona, family names like Udall and Flake have kept the Latter-day Saints in the state's political fabric at all levels for decades. But that's not true across the rest of the country. Most studies of religion and politics don't include the Mormon Church. But other major religious groups across the country also are not uniform when it comes to how they vote. Greg Smith with the Pew Research Center says there's a large fissure within the Catholic Church, a group that represents many people of faith in Arizona and makes up the second largest group of Christians in the U.S. The Catholic population in the United States is deeply polarized along partisan lines, just like the population as a whole. Catholics as a whole are roughly evenly divided between Republicans and Democrats. And you know what? Catholic Republicans tend to look just like other Republicans in their issue attitudes. Catholic Democrats tend to look just like other Democrats in the way they approach political issues. Pew research shows that the political split within the Catholic Church also breaks down along racial lines. White Catholics tend to be Republican, and non-white Catholics tend to be Democrats. Smith says that trend holds true for most Christians in the U.S. If you look at the Republican Party, it is increasingly, uh, I think it's fair to say, uh, a, a, a party that that consists mostly of white Christians, uh, white evangelical Protestants, 
make up a big part of the Republican coalition. White Protestants who aren't evangelical, white Catholics are all big parts of the Republican coalition. They're not, they don't make up the whole group to be sure, but they account for a big share of it. Smith says the Democratic Party is more racially and religiously diverse. You see, the Democratic Party, this is an oversimplification, but uh, in broad strokes, we can say that the Democratic Party consists of a large group of people from racial and ethnic minority backgrounds. And those uh, voters on average tend to be deeply religious. So in the Democratic Party, you've got a big group of racial and ethnic minority voters who tend to be deeply religious on average, combined with a large and growing group of mostly white people who by and large are not particularly religious. When it comes to religion and politics, Chris Weber, a political scientist at the University of Arizona, says partisanship is less a matter of identifying with a particular religious group and more a matter of beliefs. What we've seen over the past several decades is that traditionalists, people who have a very traditional orientation, um, have moved towards the Republican Party. Uh, and that notion of traditionalism often overlaps with religious beliefs as well. Um, and so it turns out that like one of the strongest predictors, if we're thinking about religion, one of the strongest predictors of voting isn't really um, affiliation or denomination. Um, it's uh, sort of a belief in religious orthodoxy and tradition. But Weber says pressure to vote a certain way often does not come from the pulpit. I sort of would say it's doubtful that it's that direct and that a lot of this um, you know, it works through social groups. Um, we often form um, like-minded, you know, like-minded groups in our social networks, and and that's more or less probably where this information is transmitted rather than at Sunday service. Phoenix area voter Rachel Clawson says even though her church is often regarded as a solid Republican bloc, the head of the Church of Latter-day Saints issues a letter each election year about the church having no official political party. And the letter says it may even be verbatim exactly the same thing, but that principles of the gospel are compatible in, uh, you know, uh, all sorts of political parties. That's not exactly the quote, but um, and that's that's something that people we forget <laughs> because people assume that, you know, Latter-day Saints are, are Republicans. And and so whenever whenever it comes out, people are like, oh, that's right. Or, oh, this must be new. And it's like, well, it's not really that new. It's just that we forget. Clawson says despite the letter, Latter-day Saints who are Democratic, like her, can feel alone in their congregations and even their families. But she says that's changing as more members of the church are talking openly about their opposing political choices. People are really just starting to be more vocal about it and learning how to, how do we have these conversations? Because we really haven't had these conversations before. Religious voters do represent a large share of the nation's electorate. But in the most recent Pew Religious Landscape survey, which was conducted in 2014, the percentage of voters who identified as having no official religion, including agnostics and atheists, represent about 23%. That number is larger than the percentage of Catholic voters and rivals the percentage of evangelical Protestants. Perhaps the largest voting bloc targeted by campaigns is women. 
representing half of the population, it's clear that this is not a monolith, even though it's often treated as one. University of Arizona political science professor Samara Klar says women are very divided along partisan lines. Non-white women are overwhelmingly uh, supportive of the Democratic Party, but white women supported, have supported the Republican Party in every presidential election in recent memory. So uh, there's, a, there's a lot of divides within this group that we call you know, the, the female voting bloc. It, it really doesn't exist. The candidates, of course, have been going after that female voting bloc, especially, I don't remember what election was, maybe it was 16, could have been 12, where we first heard about soccer moms, and that was the key to the election. It sounds like the soccer mom is a myth dreamt up by a candidate that the soccer mom is not a monolith at all. Yeah, you know, candidates try to sort of prime identities. And what I mean when I say that is if you can try to convince a voter that a particular identity group with which they represent is really relevant to an election, then you can try to get them to sway their views a little bit. And this is possible uh, largely when it comes to policies. So we know that Democrats and Republicans each tend to hold pretty variant policy preferences. They don't want all, not all Democrats are liberal on everything and not all Republicans are conservative on everything. And often these competing policy preferences tend to align with identity groups. So for example, if you are, you know, you're conservative, but you are also a woman, then somebody might appeal to your female identity when trying to pull you away from the conservative perspective on something. When it comes to candidates themselves, partisanship is really the biggest determinant of who people are going to vote for. And that's because, you know, women are really divided on a lot of these issues that are thought to be the women's issues. So reproductive rights, for example, most Republican women are pro-life. Most Democratic women are pro-choice. And we can say that about Republican men and Democratic men also. The real dividing line when it comes to something like reproductive rights is not gender, it's partisanship. Four years ago, of course, when Hillary Clinton was running, everyone was saying, oh, she's got the female vote. We found out in November of 2016 that that was wrong. So that really backs up exactly what you're saying. Yeah, that's sort of one of the most pervasive and almost amusing myths to me that we see every year. I mean, it happened with, when Hillary Clinton was running in the primary, um, in the Democratic primary, people thought that female voters would support her. But actually, a, a, slight, a slim majority of female voters in the Democratic primary voted for Barack Obama. Then, of course, when Sarah Palin was the vice presidential uh, candidate, there was some murmurs that potentially women who really wanted to see a woman in the White House might support her. Of course, that did not happen at all. Democratic women were fiercely opposed to to the um, McCain-Palin ticket, especially non-white women. And then again, when Hillary Clinton ran against Donald Trump, the assumption here was that women were gonna support Hillary Clinton, Republican women did not support her. And that here we are in 2020 with Kamala Harris on the ticket as the first female vice president. I would not hold my breath on Republican women's, women supporting Kamala Harris because women care for, first and foremost about their political views not necessarily their gender when they start thinking about who they want in the White House. We have found within some demographics, there may be an issue that will bind a demographic. Um, is there an issue that binds women? You said reproductive rights isn't it. Is, is there something else? You know, if I were to tell you what I think is the number one woman's issue this year, without a doubt, the economy. The vast majority of Americans who have lost their jobs in the fallout from the public health crisis of the pandemic 
are women. Women are much more likely to have left the workforce not voluntarily or voluntarily because they need to look after their kids who are not in school. So this is really the issue that I think is bonding women here. Is that an issue that could cause Democratic women to vote Republican or Republican uh, women to vote Democratic? Is it strong enough an issue or does partisanship still hold for them? I think the state of the economy is an issue that is a big problem for President Trump, particularly when we think about how he has handled coronavirus. His approval ratings are not as high as he wants them to be or as he needs them to be uh, when it comes to his handling of the crisis. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that people are out of work and they have lost considerable amounts of income. I think a second stimulus would have gone a long way for families in the United States, for women who have lost their jobs, who are struggling to pay their rent, and now they're at home looking after their kids who aren't in school. So I think this is really the issue that could have sort of increased enthusiasm among Republican women for their own candidate. Now, I'm not saying that we're going to see a lot of defectors. What I think Trump needs to be concerned about is that people are just not going to vote because they're not feeling particularly enthusiastic about either candidate. We know in a lot of demographic groups that what the woman says inside the house might not be true outside, but inside the house goes. Does that play into politics where a a woman, be it a a wife, a mother, a grandmother, says this is how the family is voting? It's such an interesting question because what we do find is that single women are much more likely to be Democrats than are married women. Married women are much more likely to be Republicans. So this poses a really interesting causal puzzle for scholars. Does getting married make you Republican? Do you become more conservative once you get married? Or is it rather that Republican women are much more likely to enter into the institution of marriage than are Democratic women? So, you know, we do know that within a family, we find a lot of political cohesion. Married couples are very likely to agree. They're actually a little more likely to agree on politics today than they were 50 years ago. Uh, Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that women are calling the shots. We know, you know, when women first started voting, one of the arguments against giving women the vote was that was why they're just going to vote like their husbands do anyway. What's the point? We're just going to double the the proportion of Democrats and Republicans, but not really change anything. And that's certainly not the case. First of all, a lot of women aren't married and they are, you know, they they change the, the composition of the electorate significantly. But we also don't necessarily see women just parroting their husband's party ID. Though we do see that, you know, both men and women are are more likely to marry somebody who already shares their political views. All right. Well, thanks for spending some time with us. Yeah, my pleasure. It's always great to talk with you. That was University of Arizona political scientist Samara Clark. And that's the buzz for this week. The election is only about 10 days away. However you cast your ballot, by mail, at an early voting site, or in person on November 3rd, we encourage everyone to vote this fall. You can find all our election coverage on our website. You can also find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. Ariana Brocious is the show's producer and editor. Vanessa Ontiveros is our production assistant. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Duncan Moon is the interim news director. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.